You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. Nobody is free until everybody is free. You know, if you're successful, throw down your ladders. Seek out other women who would support me, who would embrace my loud and proud ambition. I did happen to have a unicorn. I am a feminist. I am a feminist. And that was really scary to me, like legitimately horrifying to me. Hello. 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 And welcome to Pop-Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture, and we love talking to you about pop culture. And today's guest is someone who has been keeping me company an awful lot over the past year (laughs) because her show, which airs every weekday afternoon, has helped me feel a little less lonely as I've been adjusting to working from home. Veteran journalist Brooke Baldwin has been kicking ass in the male-dominated TV news industry for over 20 years, most famously at CNN, where she hosts CNN Newsroom with Brooke Baldwin. During her 13-year tenure at CNN, which is about to end in April... Very interesting. I can't wait to talk about that. (laughs) During her 13-year tenure at CNN, Brooke has unflinchingly held power to account while covering the most consequential issues of our day, from politics to protests to pressing social issues like gun violence, which she tackled at an impactful town hall event in 2015, earning her a very well-deserved Peabody nomination. On April 6th, Brooke will be releasing her first book, Huddle, How Women Unlock Their Collective Power. It is a blend of journalism and personal narrative that examines the many ways in which women have been coming together to create meaningful change in all areas of society, from workplace inequality to the healthcare crisis, to racial oppression, to climate change, to the COVID pandemic, to Me Too and Time's Up. It's a book that will inspire every woman who reads it to huddle up and to get shit done. I cannot wait to talk more about it. Welcome, Brooke Baldwin. Yay, oh, you're thank here. You, so much. you know, I'll, I'll let y'all in on a little secret that our unofficial title of the book is exactly what you just said, <laughs> How Women Get Amazing Shit Done. Harper Collins wasn't into it, but I'm so glad you are. <laughs> <laughs> I intuited that and I felt it in every page. It's so good. Thank you so um, much. If I may just jump right in to start by talking about your origin story. You are from Atlanta and you have said that it was your dream to become a full-time CNN correspondent, partly because CNN is based in your hometown. You actually accomplished this by the time you were 31, which totally blows my mind. (laughs) How did you make this happen? And how did you go from like little girl growing up in Atlanta to the cable news superstar we all know and love today? Oh, man. Um, Well, when you grow up in Atlanta, at least when I grew up in Atlanta, you know, you drink Coca-Cola and you watch CNN and Ted Turner was like an (laughs) icon. I remember showing up to the Braves games and watching like literally my mom would bring binoculars not to watch the play on the field, but to to look for Jane Fonda and Ted Turner. He just was this giant. (laughs) I just knew of CNN as an, you know, at an early age when it when it came to be in, in, in the 80s. And so 
um, cut to, I am, what was I going in a sophomore year in college and had a, had a feeling I may be interested in journalism, but what do we do in college? We go intern, applied for an internship at CNN and actually totally got rejected. I'll never forget being devastated. Willie was this guy who was in charge of the internships. So what does a young scrappy gal like me do? I get Willie on the phone and talk him out of his bad decision and talk my way into an internship at CNN that summer where I was interning with this now defunct show called Travel Now. And, and, and truth be told, it was full of women, women correspondents. The executive producer of the whole show was a woman. The woman, the PA I was working with was a woman. And so I was like, rock and roll, like this industry is full of women all lifting one another up. And so, you know, cut to graduating the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, double degree in journalism and Spanish. Um, actually thought I'd be behind the camera, but ended up in front of it and it kind of worked out. I busted my ass all through my twenties, was very lonely, like graduated college with all my girlfriends. They all moved to New York city and into, you know, East village studio apartments and built walls and all like lived on top of each other and had the sex in the city experience where I was living in small town America and working my way up and was a one woman newsroom on the weekends, like rolling the teleprompter with my foot and screwing it up, (laughs) rolling it backwards on live TV with the five people watching, thank God. And, you know, slowly but surely worked my way from Charlottesville to West Virginia to Washington, DC, where I was a reporter, you know, blasting around the the, the beltway, uh, covering just horrible stories, a lot of just death and destruction, but really learning my chops of writing scripts fast and listening to my photographers who really were so extraordinary and teaching me how to pitch stories and really how to be compelling on live TV. And then God got me to CNN in 2008. So I did a very, like, I did something I don't know if I would advise people to do. I basically, like, left a perfectly good job for the possibility of becoming a correspondent at CNN, which was my dream. And so, of course, that was smack dab what in what became the Great Recession of 08, 09. And so just in time for me to land at CNN, they were like, hey, we loved you, but we're not hiring because we're in a recession. And what does a 29 year old do, but move in with her parents and cry a lot and question her dream. And eventually it worked out. I love it. Can I just tell you so briefly that, you know, I had a perfectly good job and I just really wanted to work at Bust Magazine. And so I got an unpaid internship and I lived with my grandpa and I refused to leave until they hired me. So, you know, like we, I feel I, I feel that. you. Let's just friend. say that. Yes. Um, you know, you write that you spent two days in D.C. covering the Trump inauguration and the Women's March. Callie and I were both at the Women's March. We were there with our whole girl gang from oh, Bust Magazine. Love it. And that experience was so transforming for a lot of people. You say that your experience inspired you to dig much deeper into understanding both the legacy and the possibilities created by women banding together for a common cause. Out of all of the topics that you've covered over your career, why did this particular one spur you to write your first book? Oh man, such a great question. I mean, imagine you were there, right? But like that 48 hour window in Washington, that January in 2017, like the, the, on a Saturday, I was on the back of a flatbed truck embedded in the presidential motorcade as then newly elected Donald Trump was going down Pennsylvania Avenue to his new home at the White House. And I mean, 
I was sitting there covering him. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, oh my God, this guy months ago was heard on a video saying that he enjoyed grabbing women by the pussy. And as a woman, as a journalist, that was definitely on my mind. And I was troubled to say the least. Cut to the next day when I am surrounded by thousands of women in those pink hats. And I had never in my life seen so many women congregate in one location in my life. And in the end, I I look back at that as one giant huddle. But I was there as a journalist. And so I had my reporter hat on and I was there backstage watching all these extraordinary famous women, you know, whooshing past me up to the stage. And I had my moment where I thought, okay, um, this is amazing, but taking my reporter hat off, like, do I have a huddle? Do I have a girl crew, a tribe that I would have actually shared a tank of gas for a bus or, you know, jumped on a plane with and waited in the long porta potty lines with to be here for something that I truly believed in? And I think I realized that answer was I didn't. After all of my clawing for my career, I had some extraordinary singular girlfriends, but I didn't have a crew. And that needed to change. And so that moment for me was my Oprah aha moment where I remember like turning around, getting back to New York. I just knew having covered, you know, the 2016 presidential campaign, noticing a bunch of women showing up for various candidates for various reasons. I just, my spidey sense was something special was happening with women. And then after being at the women's March, like I went and was banging on my, you know, boss's doors here at CNN who all of whom are men. And I really told, I told them I wanted to dedicate this next chapter of my career to women. I wanted to create this women's series and I got a no, we can talk about that later, but I eventually got a yes, you know, but that to me was the unofficial beginning of my huddle journey. Um, I'm so interested in hearing what surprised you while you were doing two years of research to write this book. You discussed the subject with historians and sociologists and also with some truly fascinating women who I I sort of see as professional huddlers. You talked to Gloria Steinem and Stacey Abrams and Megan Rapino. What did you glean from them about what types of huddles among women do great things and which ones fall apart and why? A couple of things. Number one, the through line with all these women is that they are huddlers or they're like OG huddlers. And so the fact that they subscribe to the abundance mentality ethos, you know, Megan Rapinoe famously said, you know, if you're successful, throw down your ladders. These are women without sharp elbows. These are women who want to see other women succeed. These are women who make sure the door is wide open for the women coming up behind them in in whatever sector of society it may be within sports or cross cross sectionally among sports to, you know, fight for you know, bigger rights for women athletes to, of course, within um, Capitol Hill and create crafting legislation specifically for women to in Hollywood and putting women at the center of the story and making sure it's not just in front of the camera, but behind to, of course, activism and Black Lives Matter and just reminding people for the 80 millionth time Black Lives Matter was founded by three women. So the through line, and maybe it wasn't a surprise because I wrote a whole book on it, but I think I will be surprising for people who read it that these are huddlers. And the other surprise was 
I, I realized it wasn't totally crazy. And then I was noticing a newer phenomenon. You know, I am a white woman. I am checking my privilege right here, right? White woman, upper middle class, born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. But I noticed in the last, really my lifetime, that there was this dearth and huddling. And I talked to Kristen Goss, who's this professor at Duke, and she was like, Brooke, there's been a huddled drought for the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. I'm, I was born in 79, so that's roughly my entire life. And only in the last decade have women, white women, been coming together and, and really huddling for the greater good, as opposed to Black women in this country who have a rich history of huddling that even, you know, predates slavery. And then, of course, really gaining momentum, of course, in the 80s and the 90s with um, the womanist movement and links and the Million Woman March in Philadelphia, 97, which rivaled the, the women's march that many white women showed up to and had been criticized as performative active activism. Um, so those were my surprises. Right. And just the, the difference between white women huddling and women of color. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> well, yeah, that, well, that makes me ask, you know, how do you think that feminism really taking stock and embracing intersectionalism amongst ourselves has really made the difference in terms of our ability to create meaningful change as a movement, but also outside of the labels of feminism, just like for the betterment of the entire gender. Yes. Yes. Intersectionality is not only the special sauce, it is the necessary sauce. You think back to, um, you know, women's suffrage and a hundred years ago, black women and white women fighting side by side for the right to vote. And, you know, when push came to shove, black women were abandoned and it took 50 more years for black women to, to win the right to vote. You think of, um, you know, the civil rights movements and feminist movements of the sixties and seventies. And I want to get this quote, uh, there has been this slow reckoning among white women that, quote, nobody is free until everybody is free. And that is from civil rights legend Fannie Lou Hamer. So I believe that we cannot succeed. And I say we as women, but we cannot succeed if we're only succeeding as white women. We have mm -hmm. to be fighting for those seats at the table. We have to be building a whole new damn table. And we need to have women of every shape size, race, creed, you know, uh, every, everything at the table in order for us to be successful, to be equal, and to be successful huddlers. I would love to return to what you were talking about in terms of the huddle drought. We're around mm -hmm. the same age. I'm actually a little older than you are, mm -hmm. but we come from a similar cultural milieu. Mm -hmm. And your book definitely reminded me of when I was finding myself attracted to feminism through riot girl culture in the 90s mm. through like the riot girl music and the zine culture there was this real backlash against what was being referred to as the time at the time as girl on girl crime mm. i remember reading about and and experiencing this feeling among my peers that in the 80s the male power structure was constantly turning women against each other because only one or two women mm -hmm. would be allowed to flourish in any given male dominated environment. And I'm sure you ex experienced that intensely mm -hmm. being in journalism, especially in broadcast journalism. Yeah. But if we could somehow subvert that system and find more ways to lift each other up collectively, 
maybe we could f- we could generate the power to burn down that entire system that has been holding us back. Obviously, <laughs> just burn it down. <laughs> Riot Girls did not invent huddling, right. but it seems like these ideas run in cycles and maybe the same way that like 80s uh, shoulder pad culture <laughs> somehow gave birth to Riot Girl, that maybe the misogyny of the Trump era, of the grabber by the pussy era, when you're famous, they let you do it era, yep. can be seen as directly responsible for the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement and um, this experience that you see surging forward today. Where okay. in this cycle of peaks and valleys do you see us? I do not want to give Donald Trump that much credit. And I go to <laughs> Mika Mallory's words standing on that stage at the Women's March, where she basically is saying, we are not all here because of one man. Yes, he galvanized and pissed off a lot of white women. Let's remember 52% of white women voted for the man in 2016, Mm -hmm. but he pissed off a lot of white women in a way that white women in their privilege had not had to experience the way black and brown women in this country have. And so, yes, I do feel like there is some sort of delineation line because of Donald Trump. But when you look at the movements after, you know, whether it was Harvey Weinstein, Me Too, Time's Up, and then all of a sudden cut to 2018, where we had never seen more women, you know, I talked to the gals over at Emily's List, we'd never seen more women run for office. It was more than Donald Trump. That that point, I am clear. Mm-hmm. You know, there also seems to me, looking back over the eras of my, you know, emerging womanhood and then now being a woman for a little while, you know, mm-hmm. I remember hearing women who were in those sort of rare positions of power surrounded by men often mm-hmm. saying things like, well, all my friends are men. I'm just oh. not a girl's girl. Oh. Like, I don't I, can't I don't do girl women. things. <laughs> <laughs> It seems to me, but it was perfectly socially acceptable for much of my life for women to just say that, to just shrug and be like, look, I don't have women friends. I'm not a girl's girl. Like I get shit done with the guys, the guys way. Um, That does not seem to fly anymore. Like it, it doesn't even seem to be like a valid strategy to get ahead in the world as all. much as it used to be or or if it is your strategy maybe you should keep it to yourself why <laughs> like what why is that i mean oh gosh it like your question makes me cringe i mean the those women <laughs> who only have guy friends um i i was laughing but i really i can be friends with just about everyone i cannot be friends with these women i cannot i mean i've i, I I I don't mean to be mean. I just, I do not understand how certain women, and I think there are fewer and farther between in 2021, are just cannot lean on other women and believe Mm -hmm. in other women and show up in their vulnerability and be authentic and ask for help and want other women to succeed, you know? And, And so that is what so much of huddle is about. I mean, I could have focused so much also on just how like women can be total assholes to one another. And Lord knows I experienced that in my own industry, you know, starting, I mean, I was this young girl, young girl coming up and 
watching Oprah and Jane Polly and Katie Couric and, you know, all these women on TV. And as I mentioned, you know, that, that internship at CNN and thinking, awesome, this whole industry is full of women only to record scratch, you know, in my first job, be totally hosed by a woman six months my senior and I'll never forget it. And she had total sharp elbows. And looking back, I can understand why she did shoulder pads and sharp elbows. And, um, you know, I just, I refused to play that game for better or for worse. Uh, and I was maybe raised really well by my mom, but I just never played that game. And, you know, I, I sometimes joke with some of my girlfriends, like, well, if I was just like a little bit of a dick, maybe I would be farther ahead in my profession. You know, you see certain people who you work with who are just assholes and you're like, mm-hmm. look at where they are. Um, but I just, I sleep really well at night. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You you mentioned in the book that when you were coming up as a young journalist in the South, you experienced a huddle drought, which we were just discussing. Mm -hmm. And you often felt alone while you were making your way in this very male dominated industry. I would love it if you could talk a little more about your personal search for women to co-conspire with. I think that, you know, I read this book as someone who has worked in a, a journalistic environment exclusively of women mm-hmm. for 20 years. Wow. And that is so unbelievably rare. When I was reading your book, I was like, yes, 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 of course, of course, this is my everyday lived existence. But there are so many women who feel alone, mm-hmm. who have big dreams, who want to huddle. And that seems just sort of like an aspiration without a clear roadmap. Um, I would love for you to talk more about how you, as someone experiencing huddle drought, drew women to you to make change and, um, and how other women can do that too. That's such a great question. So, okay. So my first TV job, I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia, ripe age of 21, have the issue with this one other reporter who was six, six months older than me. She basically stole this huge assignment out from under me and an assignment, meaning like the entire duration of my, my contract there, I would have had it. And I was furious. I was just gutted. And, um, what I did was seek out other women who would support me, who would embrace my loud and proud ambitions. And they were the older women in the newsroom who were a bit more, you know, comfortable in their skin and a bit more confident and who supported me in, you know, doing my time in Charlottesville, getting promoted to work, you know, becoming an anchor on the weekend mornings and, and, you know, having, I was 21. I was hanging out with, if you can remember back, you know, when, when women were like 31, it was so old, (laughs) married and babies and so fancy. Like I just, they were the ones who gave me the time of day and I'll never forget that. And then in West Virginia, where I, it's like, I think of my life and my, my TV stints. So then I was in West Virginia in Charleston Huntington for three years. And man, talk about like, I didn't have a life. Like I was working the morning show number one. So I was going to bed at eight o'clock at night, waking up at two in the morning. And then, um, you know, the few women who I did really glom onto were, would up and leave and they'd move on to another TV market. And so, you know, good friends were fleeting. I did happen to have a unicorn in that my show director was a woman and I really, really just loved her. And so I would spend all of my time as much as I could sitting in a dark control room when I didn't have to be on TV sitting with this woman, Darla. 
And then in Washington, there were older anchors who did take me under their wing and then ultimately coming to CNN. And, and, you know, when I started, I was a freelancer for two long years trying to get that job as a correspondent. And there were certain key women in that time, again, who I sought out. I think I just have like help me, Emma Hudler, like blinking on my forehead. <laughs> and these women, you know, uh, the, the head of the, the CNN Southeast Bureau in Atlanta saw me and my pathetic yellow post-it where I had scribbled my name outside of this temporary office where I would squat every day and not get paid, but pitch shows, stories that I could maybe go shoot. You know, she took pity on me and actually got her assistant to make me a nameplate. And that sounds so silly, but it was like, Sweet. oh, Oh, it just meant everything. It felt like home and permanence, permanence and someone believed in me. And then I had a, another dear friend who was the executive producer of Wolf Blitzer's show at the time. And I ended up getting my first opportunity to do a live shot with Wolf Blitzer. And she was in the control room in Washington. And I can't remember where I was in the field. But, you know, the fact that she carved out that space for me to be able to have that opportunity, not having had many reps on TV at CNN yet. And I remember she got in my earpiece and she was like, Brooke, you'll be great. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> and I loved her for it. And she knew that would motivate me. And I had a pretty good live shot and then, you know, ended up getting called by some other shows and ended up getting hired. So there were, there have definitely been key women. And now as one of those older ladies, I make sure my door is open. I make sure I'm helping younger reporters and produ producers and whoever else, you know, I want to be that woman in the workplace that that I maybe didn't necessarily have in other on-air women because it's a cutthroat deal and people feel threatened, but that I certainly had in those women. I want to be those women. I love it. It sounds to me like you're describing this idea, you know, that I hear so often among women in power whom I really truly admire. This idea that um that success is not a finite commodity. And that like, there's actually enough success to go around. Like you're not actually sacrificing anything yourself by pulling the other women up around you. Like there's that a rising tide lifts all boats yes. and you don't have to hoard success for yourself yes. when there's someone who reminds you of you coming up behind you. Share the wealth, man. I mean, I could tell you a million stories from women in my book, but Stacey Abrams comes to mind. You know, everyone thinks of Stacey as this, I guess, depending on your politics, but, you know, a lot of folks think of Stacey as this just beacon in the South as someone who, even though she lost that gubernatorial race, is someone who still, you know, didn't, didn't let that loss take her down and instead looked out for the greater good of her state and flipping that state blue for the first time since 1992. And the story she, she and when she even made time to talk to me on the phone in the midst of all of that, by the way, with all of the, with the election happening, like on a Sunday night, she called me up and I knew I wanted to have a follow on conversation for the book. And, and she was just explaining to me how, when she was first the house minority leader in Georgia and how she had to learn really quickly how to fundraise. And it's a really, you know, it's a special skill. And so she had learned it through the years. And so when time came to flip the state of Georgia she, instead of hoarding the wealth and all of this money she'd, she'd fundraised through the years, you know, she shared the wealth with a lot of other lesser known women, women of color who were fighting the same fight as she was. And I've, there are so many stories like that that just don't make the headlines. It's not the, I don't know, I don't know if it's not the sexy story. Huddles don't always make the headlines, but the way she shared the wealth with those women, and, and I mean, I could give like three Stacey stories, but she's such a huddler and she's someone who, exactly, rising tide, lifts all boats. Exactly. 
I'm going to take this moment to actually score brownie points with my own family because my uncle Mark called me in January. I'm sure you hear from a lot of people's uncles and from a lot of people who want to talk to you about their uncles. But my (laughs) uncle Mark called me in January, very wound up and saying, if you ever can get me in touch with anyone from CNN or if you ever talk to anybody at CNN, can you please ask them this? Because he was beside himself. And I said, yes, of course, Uncle Mark. And now that day has arrived. So Uncle Mark, this is for you. And I hope you're listening. He was very upset. He was watching CNN around the clock after the Capitol riots on January 6th, as many of us were. And he was, um, getting very irate because he was watching many Republican Congress people coming on the different CNN shows as guests who were all saying, yes, what happened was terrible, but holding insurrectionists or Trump himself accountable will only inflame the divisions in our already divided country. And aren't we divided enough? And in his opinion, they were all just holding this party line and very intelligent CNN anchors like yourself were letting them in his view get away with saying this very damaging thing over and over and over again Mm. even though it's obviously bs and it's like a completely empty statement Mm. it doesn't mean anything it doesn't hold any weight where for you is the line between being a professional host and calling people on their crap and saying this is crap yeah um first of all i wasn't on that day i remember that day (laughs) watching it all i because it was our, a lot of our Washington people were on TV that day. Um, I think it's a fine line between we can't just have on a bunch of Democrats and call it a day and have a one-sided conversation. It is important to hear both sides. Mm-hmm. I hear you and Uncle Mark, I hear you <laughs> in that that only further divides the the, the crevasse of views and and sets of ethics in this country. And I appreciate that. I don't know if I have some wonderful, profound thing to say. I just know that like we have to have um, various points of view and various guests on, especially in moments like that. And I did notice that certain anchors maybe opined a bit more than normal because it was their home. It was our government. Uh, And that's also just been an interesting process of watching perfectly objective journalists, you know, have a challenging time being entirely objective when, when something like this is happening, how can you, when lives are Mm -hmm. being taken? Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's like, I had a conversation with a girlfriend the other day and, you know, we were talking about doing something about how do we, you know, bridge the divide in this country. And she was saying to me, Brooke, I don't want to bridge the divide in this country if one side feels this way and my side feels this way. Like, I don't want to be on their side and I only want them to come to my side when they agree that this is batshit, you know? And so I don't know if I'm answering your question. I hear your question and I respect your question, but like... Some days you just have to, it's just like how I tell people, especially during a lot of the madness that was happening in the country, flip around. Like, even though you just believe or you, you, you ascribe to CNN, go to Fox, take mm-hmm. a look at what those people are thinking and saying, you know, we had, we've had this, this correspondent who's funnily enough, he's Irish and he's like the QAnon whisperer, but we've been doing all these pieces on QAnon. Mm-hmm. And oh, I just think it's really important to bring that perspective to our viewers and to know that this is happening in this country and know that we need to do something about it. Right. Like when those poor Q and I, I honestly felt 
great compassion for those QAnon people who showed up in Washington because they believed in like that secret inauguration day that was happening. And like there was people who flew across the country for Donald Trump's like triumphant re-inauguration because of QAnon conspiracy theories. And they were just standing so hopefully waiting outside the White House like for something. It's like a I talked to a cult survivor. It's like a cult. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And their theories are the wildest shit. It's just out there. Dude. Dude. Cray cray. (laughs) One of the most prominent examples in the headlines right now of the impact of women huddling, I think, is Governor Andrew Cuomo's Mm. ongoing fall from grace, which itself is an outgrowth of the Me Too and Time's Up movement slash huddles. Uh, What's your opinion of where the situation with Governor Cuomo is headed, specifically from like a huddle standpoint. So I, in my book, talk to a number of the Larry Nassar survivors, member of the, you know, Team USA, the Michigan doctor who uh, got locked away for, I think, like a very long time over what he did to a lot of these young girls. And so I can speak to that in relating it to this um, Governor Cuomo situation. But let me also be clear, putting on my journalist hat, these are allegations. Larry Nassar was convicted um, and Governor Cuomo denies any of these allegations. But it is interesting that more and more women continue to come forward. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it just takes that first one or two, and then other women who have been sitting in silence and shame for so many years decide that, all right, if these women are speaking up, I'm going to join that in my, in the case of the book, you know, this huddle, this army of survivors and Amanda Thomas show, who was one of the Larry Nassar survivors said, you know, she, she was one of those who gave a victim impact statement in that courtroom, which was so powerful that whole day hearing Mm -hmm. woman after woman after woman. And she essentially said, you know, to Larry Nassar, what you didn't realize you did was you created this army of survivors in this room. And so as a result of that, these women who never in a million years thought that there were so many to think of what happened to each and every one of their bodies. But now they have this, they're linked forever. And instead of, you know, it ha- allowing it to, to bring them down, they're using it now to help other women and other sexual assault survivors. And so we will have to wait and see what happens with the result of this independent investigation that Letitia James, the um, state attorney general, is, is, is in the middle of. We shall see what happens with the future of Governor Cuomo. I mean, amazing, like 50% of New Yorkers say they don't want him to resign. Um, he was the leader when New York was in the middle of it, the worst of it a year ago. And I think some of that loyalty runs deep, but these women's stories are also compelling. So we shall see. There also seems to be a divide between whether it's better for the movement, for women, um, for culture versus cancel culture to let it play out in terms of the investigation or for him to bow to the court of public opinion and resign. Yeah. He's like, going to bow. No, definitely he, not. I don't, I do not believe that he's going to resign, but no. other people like Al Franken have deferred to the court of public opinion. It's my, it's my personal feeling that like 
women benefit from things being taken seriously in a judicial process yeah Yeah. um because the court of public opinion is so fickle and weird but other people would rather have someone resign immediately what are your thoughts on that well you bring up al franken i think that you know some of the folks at the national level representing new york some of them uh remember obviously what happened with al franken and maybe at the time got a little ahead of their skis and are being extremely overly, maybe in some cases, cautious about not saying too much and waiting for this investigation to play out. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, Brooke Baldwin, I would like to know, are you a feminist? (laughs) You know, I've really thought about this question in anticipation of talking to you. You know, I am, let me come around to the answer. So, you know, mm-hmm. born raised in Atlanta, child of the 80s, grew up loving parents, definitely never sat around a dinner table, you know, pontificating about feminism, women, equality, politics. None of that happened. Now, mind you, I was ultimately like in high school, I was the like the president of my senior class. I was the captain of the cheerleaders, but I also was a shot put thrower. Okay. And also went and played a male role in Macbeth. Um, I was an interesting, you know, gal. Um, I then enter this male dominated profession that is TV news. And I, I realized that one of the biggest compliments anyone could give me was to, is to be a woman's woman. But I think in my later years in my later thirties and early forties, I have upgraded that term from being a woman's woman to being a feminist. I think growing up, you know, a feminist was only seen in a pejorative way. I have never run around saying I am Brooke Baldwin and I am a feminist until now. And I am working (laughs) for mom. (laughs) When, when was that turning point? Was it writing the book that made that change happen for you? I think it's been over the course of the last two years. Yes. Amazing. Nice. Welcome. Yes. Welcome over to the side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We embrace you. Thank you. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, you announced February 16th that you are leaving CNN after 13 years Whoa. in mid-April. And since then, you've been doing press for your book and you hosted The Ellen Show and that was so cute and I loved it. And your profile is rising, but you said that you don't have a clear trajectory yet for what is next. This was a big surprise to me and to many others. I have so many questions. <laughs> the first the first is, does this have anything to do with the fact that CNN cut your show down to an hour, which I personally felt was bullshit? You know, um, how do I answer this? I, I, I think there are several reasons why I, you know, am leaving. Um, this place has been my home. These people are my family, but I do feel that my role is changing. And I also feel that in addition to how my role is either, you know, changing at CNN um, through writing the book and and, and interviewing these trailblazing women, um, I cannot stand and hold space with these women without also being as brave as I possibly can be. And it's a painful realization because that means I have to leave this place. And yes, even though I got knocked down to an hour after a decade, 
um, I still cherish every single moment that I am on and the conversations that I have. But it is time for me, as I joked on the Ellen show, like to do my backflip off the high dive. I just hope there's water in the pool. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds to me like you are saying that the empowerment that you felt huddling with so many amazing women for this huddle book, like gave you the courage to take this step. Is that, am I hearing you correctly? I wrote in my epilogue at some point in 2020, and I don't even know if what point of the year it was, or if I had lost that hour or not, but I remember writing, I have a feeling changes are on the horizon. And this is exactly what I was talking about. Um, Mm. I think I wrote it sort of nebulously, not knowing if I would have the, the, uh, the cojones to, 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 to go, but I, I, it, it, you know, my contract is up in April. I, it has been an extraordinary decade for me in a privileged spot with such a voice and a platform, but I have bigger plans and these I smell women, a new Barbara Wawa. These women have changed my life. <laughs> they have. Have you been deluged with offers to do cool new, cool new stuff I mean, since you announced it in February? The Ellen DeGeneres phone call was kind of cool. So I'd love mm-hmm. to go back and do that again. Um, and I, the other trick I have up my sleeve is I have been working in this last year because of Huddle. I would like it as a TV person. It killed me that I wrote this beautiful book, but that I have no video, no, you know, no TV cameras to, 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 to show for it. And we just, I just had some of the most incredible moments of my, you know, life. And so I'm working with a production company to try to pitch a streaming network, Netflix, if you're listening to create an, an unscripted docuseries to tell the stories of huddles around the country, um, for people, I mean, who are sitting at home and want to binge. Perfection. I love it. Do you have any more hopes and dreams and plans for the rest of 2021? Like what is on your vision board? I just bought my um, cork board to create that vision board. How did you know? (laughs) Yeah. In my life, but I'm about to create one. And um, I'm having a hard time, honestly, thinking past April 16th. That is my last day at CNN. So it's like I'm, you know, in in the book now and I'm hoping people read it. That is the biggest thing I think about when I go to bed and wake up in the morning. I just really want to create a movement among women and like add the word huddle to everyone's lexicon. And then beyond leaving CNN, I want to see my mom. I want to see my girlfriends and then I want to go stick my head in the sand in the BVIs with my husband. And I cannot think that. That sounds amazing. I would, I would like to do that. All of those things, especially the mom hugging. If I talk about the mom hugging too much, I'm going to cry, but I'm with you on that. Um, (laughs) This is my last stories. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so this is my last question. It's the last question that I ask all of our guests. And that question is what you watching. We want to know what you are consuming pop culturally. So we're talking about books, movies, television, music, music, videos, podcasts. If you are checking it out, it's probably pretty cool. Brooke Baldwin, what you watching? <laughs> so I've actually been on a whole throwback kick. So I, okay. I have gone, 
all through the toughest part of just like covering the election and the end of Donald Trump, I have been binging. This is my, I think my third pass of the Gilmore Girls, which got <laughs> re- re-uploaded onto Netflix, like Lauren Graham as Lorelai Gilmore and the mother-daughter relationship. Maybe I've just been really missing my mom, but just how the, you know, the, the pithy pop culture, historical references. It is such a clever show. Amy Sherman Palladino created it and it just deserves way more props than it ever got. And so Gilmore Girls, number one, which was super fun because when I was out at the Warner Brothers lot for Ellen, they literally took me on a golf cart to the gazebo in the middle of um, Stars Hollow and I died. Wow, that's awesome. I love that. When I first moved out of my grandpa's house into my own place living alone for the very, very first time when I started working at Bust, I would come home from work and binge Gilmore Girls. I just Uh, found it like so comforting, like in a city that felt so scary. Watch it as an older person and just mindful of what's happening in the country. Like they referenced Donald Trump running for president in the first season. Talk about Talk about prescient, prescient, however you say that. I don't remember that. Um, They talk about Hillary Clinton running for president. Like this show was shot in the the early 2000s. It just, they were just so ahead of their time. Um, And like Rory at the very end goes off to intern for a guy named Senator Barack Obama. Like just so good. Okay. Um, (laughs) And then I did the whole Bridgerton trajectory. Hello. Mm -hmm. And then I got on the the crown and I binged all of the crown just recently. And then I finished this is us. And then I, now I'm, I'm going back as another throwback to sex in the city. Ah, uh, yes. Me and my yeah. husband just started redoing Sex in the City. Um, I'm a big This Is Us fan. I just finished that last season. And then I also love Queen Sugar. I interviewed Ava DuVernay. <gasps> Me too. Are you a Queen Sugar fan? I feel like that show... I have to say that I'm behind, but I am actively in the middle of season three now. Um, But I feel like that is one of the most criminally underrated soap operas. If you are like a soapy, like drama person, Queen Sugar is so good. And I know so few people who watch it and it's so good. I am so happy and excited that you came on our show. I didn't know what to expect. You were like the first, you know, like big, like, news anchor woman that we've talked to you and I thought that like your job would force you to be much more I don't know like restrained than you have been like I'm so happy and excited to talk to you like an actual real live lady Mm -hmm. who's so nice I'm bringing me bringing me to the deal (laughs) thank you for seeing me thank you thank you both this has been awesome I am such a fan and I am a feminist Ah, (laughs) huddle with us i would love to huddle with you when people are allowed to huddle again but of course we are still virtually huddling we're huddling right now we don't need to spread our germs to huddle but it would be nice to hug (laughs) i am going to take the briefest of breaks and when we come back i'm going to ask callie and callie's going to ask me what you watching you watching Hey, this is Emily, and I wanted to tell you about two books I think you're really going to love. Celebrate the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the trailblazing women in law who came before her with the publication of her final book, Justice, Justice, Thou Shalt Pursue, and the publication of Paving the Way, for which she wrote the foreword. Justice, Justice, Thou Shalt Pursue is a curation of her own legacy, tracing her life's work for gender equality and a more perfect union. 
In it, she shares details from her life and long career. And when it comes to breaking down barriers for women, Ginsburg's name speaks volumes for itself. But as she clarifies in the foreword to Paving the Way, there are many trailblazing names we do not know. Visit ucpress.edu to learn more about these groundbreaking women. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have docket. We dockets. all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams. I'm Caitlin Bradley Smith. And, <laughs> and we, we love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. It's amazing. So smart. I mean, so like smart. To, I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Yes. Hello. We just talked to Brooke Baldwin. Wasn't she something? Dude, I didn't expect her to be so funny and just, she was great. She was so chatty yeah. and I thought, you know, being from the news, she would be a bit more res- like reserved. Yeah. Yeah. She was a breath of fresh air. I love talking to her. Love it. And now, Callie, I gotta yes. know, I wanna know, I need to know, I simply must know what you watching. Well, I have been watching Little Nas X, Montero, Call Me By Your Name. On repeat. The song, the video, I all of it. Love it. Living for it. The pole dropped to hell. It is I've been watching the reaction videos. <laughs> they're great. <laughs> I didn't know there were reaction videos. That's great. Oh my God, they're so good. And um then you know, you made those Satan shoes that apparently have a drop of blood in them and people are bugging out about that. <laughs> and, and the video's so great, you know, he's playing like all of those characters. Like his uh-huh. face lap dancing for Satan. God. Yeah. And he took lap dancing. He took pole classes. He did that. Just to do that pole, pole ride to hell. And the upside down, you know, on, you know, all the Satan, Satan flipping. Mm-hmm. That was, it's yeah. just, and the song is such a fucking bop. That's going to be the song of the summer. I know. He's done it again. He has done it again. Um, and at last time we discussed, you know, I was on the 50 best horror movies you've ever seen on Tubi. Yes. So I'm going to give you a couple of them and try to keep my descriptions short. But Okay. So inside, that you can find. So the, the, the best horror movies, uh, that video clip, that's on Tubi. But all these videos I found in different places. 
So Inside's on Hulu, and that's a home invasion. I love a home invasion movie because that can happen to me, and it's scary. scary. I love home invasions. This is a preggers, partially deaf lady, and another lady breaks into her house because she wants her unborn baby. Oh, so scary. Yes. There's a lot of blood. The pregnant lady does not get to follow her birth plan. Um. It is, you know, like plot wise, it was a little predictive, but it was very fast, lots of gore, intense two ladies just going at it. You know, you never get to see just only two ladies one on one. Um, the podcast made it seem like it was going to be even more gory than it was. So I went in with high blood, but it was still very, very gory. Um, there's apparently okay. an unrated version that you should not watch because there's seven minutes of the gore is missing. Don't do that to yourself. <laughs> oh, God. Um, then there's Hatchet. That's on Amazon. It's a 2006 throwback to a classic slasher movie. Really insane blood spray in this. I loved it. It's a group of people from uh, in New Orleans on a haunted swamp tour. They get scran- mm-hmm. uh, stranded. And then it, the swamp is haunted by this crazy killer. He's like a deformed uh, face but super ripped, like insanely ripped. The face, <laughs> the the mask for the face is very cheesy, but and the how ripped he is is hilarious. But the killings are wasn't wild. Toxic Avenger kind of like that too. Like wasn't Toxic Avenger ripped yes. with a with yes. a girl's face? Yeah, it's very it's sort of like Toxic Avenger if he was cottagecore. Then <laughs> <laughs> we have Tourist Trap. This was nineteen seventies. It wasn't like. It's really slow for me. I like a faster horror. But it is a weird supernatural telekinesis mannequin horror. That one was on oh, Tubi. I love telekinesis. I think you would really like this because it's not too gory. And it's a road trip. Um, there's like a roadside museum. And uh, these people go to check it out. And it's full of all these mannequins that can move things with their mind. And they are like have these creepy, creepy half masks. And it turns out that they are really dead people turned into mannequins. Tell me what that's called again. That's Taurus Trap. Okay. The masks are so fucking creepy. Then there's Basket Case from 1982. This was in the Oh, MoMA. that's a classic. I've seen yeah. that. This is in the MoMA archives. Camilla loved this movie. So this is a guy. You've seen this one? Yes. Basket Case I saw in the 80s, right? Yeah, 82 is when it came out. So this guy, um, he carries around his conjoined, deformed, conjoined twin, now separated, in a basket. And um, mm-hmm. the the twin is like a murderous creep, the fiend, I guess, suppose. And it is all puppets and no, like, crazy special effects. It's just stop motion, which <laughs> makes it so cool to watch. And, it's adorable. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it's adorable for real. And um, there, a, a bonus for you is that there are two full dick shots when the main character is running down the street nude. Swing. Schwang. Uh, and then uh, there's this movie, Bad Taste. This wasn't on the list, but my friend Audrey. Oh, I've maybe, seen that. Yeah, Baby suggested it. It's a cult classic, 1987, too. And this is Aliens Invade New Zealand to Turn the Humans into Fast Food. It is Isn't hilarious. that Peter Jackson? It is Peter Jackson from um, Lord of the Rings. He directed it. He also directed, I didn't know, he did Meet the Feebles. Yes, uh huh. That was messed up. That is a fucked up movie. 
dirty, dirty Muppets who do a lot of injectable drugs and and make questionable decisions with their sex lives. Uh, yeah, and then there's like the really sad rabbit who's dying. Of, I think he's AIDS. It's fucked up. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this one is just like hilarious gore. There's this really funny cliff scene where like these guys getting chased by these two dudes with mallets and he's holding on to the edge of a cliff like to the grass like a goat and um <laughs> and then he just is shooting a machine gun at the other dude and like blows his head off and then oh it's just the, the blood in the it's so it's ridiculous it's great i loved it mm-hmm. and then the last from the list i'm going to give you today is splinter and that's a 2008 2b and this one is Okay, so there's this this weird substance that's like little spiky thing. It's like a goo with spikes, weird thing, and it turns, it like infects people and animals from the inside, makes them like go rabid and turn into these like rabid creatures. And um, these people get stuck inside a gas station with this like murderer who has escaped or is on the run or something like that. And there's (laughs) a severed hand that is attacking them in the gas station and chasing them around all over the place. And they're being like, it is terrifying. You would think this is, it's, it's funny. It's a hand, but it is terrifying. Yeah, it sounds like a thing from Adam's family. Yeah. But it's like murderous. <laughs> it's going to murderize you. And the hand scene, the, the scenes with the hand are the best. So that pretty much sums up what I've been watching. It's a lot of horror. You did a great uh, job. Yeah, I've been sucking it in. And you? (laughs) Thanks so much for asking. You know what? I decided to dip into some of the suggestions that our guests have been making recently because they have good taste, right? And so first, um, do you remember Kira Sedgwick was telling us about that movie, The Platform? Yes. I found it on Netflix, and that was really scary to me. It's this film. It's set in this giant vertical tower that's like a giant it's like a giant block of a tower and people sign up for this it's like a social experiment and people sign up for it but obviously they don't know what they're getting into they they can bring one item and they sign up to stay in this giant vertical tower that has all these different floors um like hundreds of different floors and they they sign up to stay there for 30 days and so you go in there and the then they discover that the way it works is there's this this gourmet kitchen somewhere like deep in the basement or somewhere there's this gourmet kitchen and they make this giant feast and the the tower is hollow and the middle of the tower is this elevator that shoots all the way to the top floor and it's covered with this giant feast on this huge platform. And the people on the very top floor, floor number one, they get to their pick of like this giant feast. And then whatever they don't eat goes to the second floor and then the third floor and then the fourth floor and so on. So each each floor, they eat the leftovers from the floor before them. And it's this horrifying sort of metaphor for trickle-down economics mm-hmm. where the the lower the floors go, the more desperate and dire the situations become until it's a matter of life and death and people, like, are legitimately dying. Um, and every once in a while they, they shift around what floor you go to. And so, like, you never know what's coming up and if you can survive to make it to the next floor and if you, your next situation will be better or worse. 
I was wondering how they got to the floor, how you ended up on one floor. So it's just a game of chance. It's very disturbing. And, and it was very good. Kira Sedgwick did not steer me wrong. Um, so then the, the next thing I watched, I don't know if you remember, Roxanne Gay said that she was watching this reality show called Bling Empire on Netflix. It's basically the reality television series that is like the reality show version of Crazy Rich Asians. It focuses on a whole bunch of wealthy East Asian and East Asian American socialites in L.A. and their like incredibly opulent lifestyles. I really, really loved Bling Empire. I binged all of it. I loved it. And I can't wait for it. It's been renewed and I can't wait for it to come back. But in the meantime, I was craving more Bling Empire. And so I actually went over to HBO Max and watched Crazy Rich Asians. Good. And I loved it. I thought it was great. You overcame. Uh, And that, my friend, is what I've been watching. The last thing that I've been watching, of course, course. is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page. It's in the world, and it is our way here at Pop-Tarts to help keep our employer bust alive. And hopefully you will be excited by the goodies that we've hooked up for our Pop-Tarts listeners there. The way it works is you go over to patreon.com slash Pop-Tarts podcast, and there's all these different patronage levels that you can choose, starting at just $1 a month and capping out at at uh, a king's ransom of $25 a month, which actually... <laughs> Think about it. Isn't that much? But at each sponsorship level, you're sponsoring this show, Pop Tarts Podcast. And at each level of sponsorship, you get goodies. You get goodies like show notes of what every single person has been watching for all 105 episodes. You can get ad-free episodes. You can get a swag package from Bust. You can get a Zoom chat with Callie and I. There's all these different prizes that we've hooked up for our listeners based on um, sponsorship level. And you can find all of those levels and all of those goodies and everything that we've put together over there at patreon.com slash pop tarts podcast. I hope you will consider it. And finally, I would like to say a big thank you to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Muy caliente. And of course, to our girl gang at bust magazine, you can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you cannot find Callie, so don't even try, right? Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> but <laughs> you can email both of us. I'm at emilyrems at bus.com. Callie W at bus.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. And we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. By the way, just to keep things uh, so Miss Polly won't steal.